Okay, hello? Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is a very strange day. Uh, you know, I guess this is like our fifth very strange day, or fourth very strange day. I don't know when Trump was diagnosed with coronavirus or when he went to the hospital. But today is the day, if you are keeping track, when he got out of the hospital, he went back to the White House, he gave that bizarre speech at the, uh, I don't know, at some porch or something like that. Like he was, <laughs> what, what's that called? Like is A like, balcony? Like a hotel balcon- balcony yeah, almost? A balcony. Balcony is a word I was thinking about. And in <laughs> which he said, part. don't let it dominate you, right? Isn't that? Was that yeah, the, yeah. yeah. He tweeted that don't too, it, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. So that's clearly like a talking point that they were thinking of is like, don't let it dominate you, which is, you know, a strange thing to say. And so we debated for a bit about whether or not we should talk about all of this because it's kind of all new and we're not sure if there's anything particularly profound to say, but we're going to try. And, uh, you know, we try and be a topical show. And then in the second half, we can talk about something that is a bit more you know, the type of thing that we want to talk about. But I have Tammy and Andy here. Uh, What's your reaction here to all of this? What do you think is happening? It's crazy. Tammy, you want to go first? I have nothing interesting to say, which is, guess, not a good thing to say on a podcast at the beginning of this podcast. I feel like I've been broken since the debate. Yeah. No, I feel like this was was like a new low, I feel like, this last weekend. Yeah. Every new revelation. I was thinking like, okay, so like, what is the whole idea of basically let's just like pretend this thing doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the election is like less than a month. They're not going to get the economy back. So it's really like, uh, you know, this emotional, this emotional call out to his base, like be strong and vote for me rather than, um, you know, somehow getting all the restaurants and schools to open in the next three weeks. Because that's obviously not going to happen. Wait, so are you are you insinuating here that it might be fake? That maybe he doesn't have it? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying I definitely this. thought that. Like you did? Why, okay. why would he lie? You know, why why would he lie? Oh, to get elected. Why would he get elected? Because somehow the economy goes back and people don't take the virus seriously. But like that's obviously not gonna happen either. So like what is the scenario in his head in which he says, Don't let this dominate you equals Trump election? And that's I'm having a hard time working it out. The only the only thing I could figure out is like you know, some weird emotional attachment um, that his base would have to like manhood, I guess, or masculinity. Yeah, just strong or... man politics, right? Yeah. Okay, it's... so Tammy, what, what do you mean? Like, you actually thought for a second there that maybe he was faking all of this? <laughs> Longer than a second. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> like today, today or mean, earlier days. Didn't you guys you, think that? Do you still think he's faking it? I mean, not. Really? Well, now, because so many people have tested positive, like all around yeah. him, including like White House press corps and stuff. But <laughs> honestly, yeah, I did. I mean, I just I feel like I'm just 100 percent gaslit all the time and anything could be true. Yeah, I I think the only thing that makes the whole I, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that Trump faked this. Right. Yeah. I do think that he is too stupid to actually think about faking it. And that he would rather just be, it's the whole thing is fake. You know, him getting it makes it real, even if he's giving these like weird speeches. Mm-hmm. But like you said, so many people have it, including like New York Times reporters. <laughs> yeah. And, and the people who work in the staff cleaning the White House, like some so, of them have coronavirus now too. And 
what three senators and Kelly McEnany and Hope Hicks and all these yeah. people who Mike Lee, the senators who got it all basically everyone who was standing in that picture has coronavirus, Chris Christie. Right. And I don't think all of them could fake it. <laughs> I you know. know. So that's the thing. Obviously, it's going around. I don't know if all of those people would have disclosed that they had coronavirus, but I actually think one of them would have. You know, yeah. the Times reporter certainly would have been like, hey, uh, maybe I got it here. And, <laughs> you know, Trump's in the hospital. What's up with that? Oh, you know, God. so um, I, I, I think that conspiracy theory in terms of the Trump administration is always enticing just because, you know, they would do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, there's no question that they would do some of the things that people would say that they would do if they are smart enough. Right. And if they could think of it, but my the general thing is like they haven't really thought about it that much. And we don't know like what sort of secret things, but the evidence to me is always stuff like, oh, if Trump really wanted to get rich off being president, he could have done all sorts of things to get personally rich, right? But the stuff that he can think about is like selling his stakes on, you know, during the campaign and <laughs> yeah. having people stay at his hotels. I'm not the only person to say this, but you know. I am not a financial wizard, but you know I do some options trading on Robinhood and generally degenerate <laughs> human, degenerate human being when it comes to like gambling large amounts of money. Like I can think of all sorts of ways that I think I could actually make money if I was president of the United States. And Trump doesn't think of any of those, you know. Yeah. And it's not because he thinks they're too illegal. I just think he's too like he doesn't really think that way. Like he's not hmm. a financial genius or anything like that. So staging all of this, I think, is a little bit too elaborate. But it also feels like something is very off, right? Like, and I think that's what's causing people to be crazy, which is that they don't really know what to think. Like, your intelligence tells you that this is real. Your intelligence tells you that Trump is obviously trying to spin it. Your intelligence says he's probably much more sick than he's letting on. But then he's doing these videos where he looks kind of okay. I don't know. What do you think? Does he? Do you think he looks okay? Mm, I don't think he does. He looks like he's like really labored breathing. Um, I'm trying to, I'm, I kind of am hoping it's like worse than it is, but it's not. It's, it seems like he seems okay. He seems like <laughs> he'll survive. I'm trying to like look for hints that like maybe he's about to collapse. Um, I think it's what's a little like doth protest too much, right? Like the yeah. videos are really long. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. So you're, <laughs> like, you're is saying... there like a puppet behind you? Like, you know, people <laughs> like propping you up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The videos are way too long. Like he, the last one was like almost three minutes long. The one inside Walter Reed was really long and he doesn't really say, any, he doesn't use the time to say anything substantive. Obviously yeah. he just repeats himself over and over again, but it is strange how long the videos are. Are you but, actually watching uh, the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's only Not three really. minutes. I have nothing. What else am I going to do? <laughs> I just can't you know? emotionally deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> I think oh. I think I think what makes us crazy is like we've kind of known for four years that there's some that something crazy has happened, but we got the sense like there's some adults in the room that won't let it get too far, and like we'll just like bide our time and hold our breath, and eventually four years later, you know, you know this will be over soon. But like now, it's like no one's gonna stop him. He can do whatever he wants. He can like tell the Secret Service to ride in a hermetically sealed car with him while he has coronavirus. And, you know, he can get out of the hospital before he's finished his treatment. And it's like, no one, no one can stop this guy. He's technically the most powerful person in the country, if not the world. I don't know. If that's true. But yeah. And it's just like, wow, like this thing that we've kind of knew, known in the back of our minds for four years is really, it's really happening now. And it's like, he's saying the exact opposite of what all scientists and all responsible think, you know, should be the message. And again, no one's going to stop him or contradict him. And uh, yeah, we're like. It's just like, what is going on and how is this going to end? 
Tammy, Tammy, what do you think? How do you think this ends? <laughs> I thought I'm you were like, frozen. Yeah, me too. I know because I'm like, <laughs> but she was blinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, that's basically what I do all day. Just gonna stare. I, I don't know. I mean, I'll share with you that my fantasy of <laughs> my fantasy is that you know he'll get sick, but not so sick that Pence has to win, and then Biden will win. Oh my god, that's like the saddest fantasy, right? <laughs> oh yeah. So let, let, let's just let's just go straight to our discussion topic. The thing that I wanted to ask two of you that I wanted to talk about and you know talk about myself was whether or not you know this is sort of for people who already kind of disapproved of Biden, right, and who really hate Trump. Like, is it is it reasonable now to just be like, all right, now electoral politics don't matter to us anymore? Because like the thing that I always get a sense of, and this is perhaps part of like a Korean inability to deal with authority, is that I feel like I'm being pushed into making a choice now, right? Because Trump has revealed himself to be, I mean, he always revealed himself to be so bad, but now yeah. it's just like in your face all the time. There's this stuff where he like, you know, I don't, I didn't have any hope about how he would respond to this, but obviously he just did what he was always going to do, which is come out and just say, it's not a big deal. I got over mm -hmm. it. You know, yeah. um, we can all get over, everyone can get over it. Don't let, don't take this virus too seriously. And it does seem like, uh, f you know, four more years might end up with some sort of catastrophe, right? Like the country will never be the same again, but my contention, which I've been thinking about quite a bit is that the country is not going to be the same anyway. Yeah. Right? Like we're fucked. Like it's all the things that used to exist before coronavirus is it takes so long to get back to that point. And I was thinking about this in terms of last week's topic, like where we talked about Wes and Zena's article about people starting like the, the Sheraton hotel and trying to create like some sort of like homeless encampment based on I abolitionist ideas. I am mm -hmm. being more drawn to the idea that perhaps like this is a viable alternative right now. And that we, <laughs> and most of it comes from the fact that, like, I don't know, it just seems so strange to me at this point where we have this raving lunatic in the White House and the alternative is a guy who, like, can't even say the words Medicare for all, can't say anything about universal health care at a time when it's desperately needed. We have a like, Democratic leadership that can't get through anything that the country needs. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody agrees what the country needs. Like, it's not that difficult. You need cash stimulus. You need money in small businesses, you need aid, you need to help people not have to go to work to put themselves at risk. You need massive reform of nursing homes. You need massive reform, reform of the healthcare system. Like everyone knows this, even Republicans know this and, uh, you know, they can't get anything done. And so then I just wonder, like, is this like an intractable moment that we've reached where people will start dropping out and um, <laughs> try to figure out some sort of alternative to electoral politics because i i don't know i think that this is actually profoundly traumatizing for a lot of people yeah. you don't see it through like a massive like skin of irony but uh <laughs> you know like it's it sucks um i can't remember it sucking this much uh yeah. in terms of trying to figure out what we're gonna do um Andy, your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> i think people have already dropped out they've been dropping out for decades that's how we got to this point in the first place I, yeah, I mean, I think I do kind of, I was, I keep asking myself that question. I, I, you know, asked two minutes ago, like, how does it end? I don't know how it ends. Like, I, I really don't know how it ends. And 
in terms of like, you know, do people have faith or not in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party or the electoral politics? I've been telling myself this is like not just the tr- a strategic vote for Biden. This is like the most strategic vote in the history of strategic voting. This is like the most, like, I feel so much contempt for the person I'm voting for, but at the same time feel zero hesitation to vote this way, right? And it's like, at that point, politics really is like, it gets completely divorced from any sort of romantic ideal ideal about, you know, expression of one's personal mm-hmm. self-interest or group interest and, you know, balancing, you know, different, different, you know, harmonizing the different interests in this country. It's just like, we have two terrible options and one is obviously much less terrible than the other one. And if people weren't already like, um, what's the word, like, awakened to like the how how shitty these parties are and how shitty this whole system is like it's there's no i can't think of a more uh, you know flagrant demonstration than like the current situation and like but i don't know what happens after that it's like we have a th- we have a 300 year old system like we don't we don't know what else to do oh sorry that was just <laughs> we probably don't yeah tammy what do you think is are people awake now or or are more people becoming awake or is everybody just kind of hoping that Biden wins and then everything magically goes back to normal? <laughs> I agree with you that there's no return to normal. And I think that, I mean, I'm trying, I hate the cliche of like reckoning, but I think, think people are seeing us for who we are. We're seeing ourselves for who we are. And so we need to evaluate like what that means moving forward. I do wonder about, what we previously believed about electoral politics, which is that, and when I say we, I mean like people who on the left who don't actually think electoral politics generally achieves our goals. Like we have always thought about electoral politics as just like laying the ground for other work that we can do. Right. So like with Hillary, we were like, okay, well she sucks, but we'll still do our organizing. We'll still do X, Y, and Z. And there are like ways to push her, you know, left caucus stuff, blah, blah, blah. I do feel less sure about that now, you know, at the well, same time. Okay. Go ahead. I I just want to interject here and say that I don't think that what you said that left politics generally thought of electoral politics as like a necessary evil to lay the groundwork for other work is necessarily true of the Bernie campaign, right? Like there are a lot of people who thought that that was, that he was a savior figure and it was the, yeah. that the world would significantly change if he won that primary in 2016 and yes. then again in 2020. I mean, so He's it was super unusual. I actually though, have the- argued before. Right, right, right. But I'm talking the last eight years. I feel like the thing that's strange to me is that I, I actually would argue that like no politician has ever been more. That no, no group, no electors have ever put more faith in their candidate than like the Bernie people did in Bernie. Like nobody was more earnest about in our. The, in our, in lifetime. our lifetime. Yeah, in, yeah, our, in lifetime. our lifetime, sure. Maybe, Maybe like, like in the, in the 19th, 19th century. <laughs> yeah, they're really yeah, into yeah. it. Cal- like, Cal- Cal- Hugh- or something. <laughs> like, the, like the racists who supported Huey Long probably in Louisiana <laughs> in the 1920s probably yeah. believed that he was like the vanguard of some sort of new moment in american politics or something like that maybe yeah. maybe that's the closest that we can get but not during our lifetimes and yeah. i don't know what happened with kennedy i imagine it was much more cynical than the bernie campaign yeah, I yeah. Think but so. i can't actually remember a per- maybe rfk was a little different than jfk but i yes, i just I, I do think that electoral politics actually was probably moved more to the center of people's minds than it used to be 
because of the Bernie campaigns, the two Bernie campaigns. And right. that, um, I don't know, it's, I don't, I don't see a lot of people talking about this. I think it's for obvious reasons, but, um, it just seems like maybe that was like, I, that's just crashed and burned. I don't hear the, I don't hear like the name Bernie Sanders at all anymore. Like it's, no, it's, it's, he's not the candidate. So they're just like, like, I think all of us were just standing down and waiting for some other person to, I think if there were a Bernie like figure or Bernie like candidates, like there's there, that energy is still out there. I feel like they just can't do it. They're not, they're not, they're not going to do it for Biden. Right. Yeah. But they're also not going to like contradict Biden. I think but that's, do you think that those people will get the same people will get as revved up for the next candidate? I mean, it depends on the candidate. Like, yeah. You know. Do you mean nationally? I agree nationally, but the local nationally. stuff is continuing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I meant. Yeah, I meant uh, like sort of. Is there going to be a presidential like? Let's I say mean, AOC runs in eight years or something like that. Do yeah. you think that all that there's going to be the same level of faith placed in electoral politics because? I don't know. I, I I guess I think I see it both ways, and I see these two things to be actually in some sort of contradiction with one with them with one another. But I'm not sure if it's like a contradiction that matters, if that makes sense, right? Like, or the like maybe the best way to put it is that there's like a slight irony between the two of them. And the first is that you have people who have never really engaged in any sort of faith in electoral politics, really earnestly engaging in this presidential campaign, right, for eight years. Millions of people are super into this and they believe it'll be a revolutionary moment. And at the same time, over the past like nine months or something like that, the American electoral system or the system government of elected officials, not just Trump, has has sort of revealed itself to be so thoroughly corrupt in the same way that those people who were part of the Bernie campaign believed it was. So it like revealed itself to what they thought it was. And so then how do you rev yourself back up to be like, oh, well, we can still transform this when it you know, all the evidence just confirms your prior idea that all of it is irredeemable. And so I don't know, like, I think that that is something that I'm at least interested in, in terms of like, what will come out of this is just that, I don't know, I don't think there's going to be another Bernie Sanders, you know, I don't think there's going to be another sort of mass movement like that. I think things will become localized and more radicalized. Some people will go more towards the center and join Sean McElwee or something like that, right? Um, or like the the guy who wrote that Jacobin article about liberalism. Um, but I bet a lot of these young people are not. But what do you yeah. think they're going to do? I think they're going to drop out of caring about politics at all. You know, I think a lot of them that what's going to happen is that we're going to have mass cynicism everywhere. But why would but it, I don't know? I don't know about that. I think you're right. There's not going to be another Bernie. And we were kind of saying this all throughout, right? Like how many 80 year old socialist senators from Vermont are going to emerge again? Like even AOC would be a totally different scenario where it's like, but it's about her being young and not corrupted by the system and making much more, you know, identitarian appeals and, and probably turning off some like older people who feel like she's like disrespectful to them. Uh, but, you know, hopefully like she captures new voters too. Um, but I do, th I, I kind of think like for a lot of Bernie people, and I think I might include myself in this, like we were not naturally into politics to begin with. I know I'm not, you know, naturally into like yeah. the democratic party wonking, wonkery stuff. Um, and so, but so working to help, you know, the Bernie campaign, whatever, we don't see it as like, being engaged in electoral politics as such, mm -hmm. right? It's about just basically this like guerrilla effort to overtake one of the parties. And, um, you know, like to the extent that people see it as like an ex an expression of what they need in life, like materially what they need in life. And this is the best way for the government to do something for them. 
I think that's that's. I mean, as long as shit is bad, I feel like there's going to be people out there who are willing to do that. Using the electoral system and not like doing things like you know creating clinics for themselves or they could do I don't both. know doing like the weathermen like you know. I feel like every every Chaz person voted Bernie. That's my guess. No. Right. Yeah. Or Taz or whatever. Maz. Chaz. <laughs> but all the autonomous. All <laughs> what the is autonomous Maz? What, what the other? Like Min- Minneapolis or whatever. They oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I guess um, I the thing that comes out of it for me, I guess, and I'm not really sure if I believe it or not, or if I even find it necessary to express too publicly is just like i don't know i just think that it's gonna we're getting sort of our feet held to the fire to vote for biden like you i will vote for biden happily you know um and uh i think a lot of young people are gonna do it and they're gonna notice in you know a year that people are still being shot by the police that biden is doing like a law and order support the cops type of message that uh there's no movement at all on healthcare that they'll blame on the Senate or something like that. But it's really just because he doesn't have the political will to do that sort of stuff on climate stuff. I know that he has a very progressive plan that he wrote with, uh, with AOC and like Trump was trying to bait him into, and actually did successfully bait him into calling it the green new deal with his idea, you know, but, um, I don't know. They're not going to fall through with that. And then I think a deep cynicism will fit, set in, you know, and I don't actually know what's going to happen within that deep cynicism, but it just seems kind of inevitable to me. I don't know. And Tana, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to be hopeful about like other forms of organizing, like union organizing. And I think even if people drop out of the electoral system, they could find other places and maybe that could lead to, I don't know, something larger scale down the road. I, I don't agree that there may not, there will not be a Bernie again. I, we don't know. We don't know who that's going to be. And all they I have mean to be by like that, 60 years old already. Well, yeah, obviously <laughs> it's not going to be a particular profile, but um, I think I've recently been meeting a lot of people who voted, who were supporters of Obama and then, Bernie and then Trump. Mm, what? And I'm really. <laughs> How does that work? There's a lot of people who like voted for Obama who are like voting for Trump now, but they would have voted for Bernie. Is what I mean. Yeah. Like, right. and I, I think like I'm kind of feeling like we could have an economic populist again who introduces those reintroduces those ideas to our discourse in a really powerful way. I don't know who it's going to be or when it's going to happen, but I, I don't count that out. And I think. There could be complete electoral dropouts who at that point are like, oh, okay, we're back in. Like, I think people are more agile. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I you know, unions, like, I think unions are more important than ever right now because, you know, they're basically the only thing propping up the Democratic Party, right? Like, that is the main channel for democratic support in this country. And that's why the right wing has always tried to destroy unions. And I think in a way I see a lot of young people participating in like union efforts and worker organizing and their dues basically fund a lot of democratic causes. 
their heart is not in electoral politics, but that where their heart is funnels up money to some of those causes. So they're mm-hmm. connected to the electoral work in that way. Um, which I think means they don't discount it completely, but they are able to separate like where their heart is yeah. from the electoral piece. Yeah. It's hard for me to try and decipher just because, you know, it seems like we're entering a, we're going to enter a difficult period. And I don't know. I still think that the, I am actually, the whole thing that makes me hopeful for this is not really any sort of electoral results or any government thing that can happen. I do think like some sort of decentralization, all of this is going to be inevitable, right? That, that the Bernie, what the movement, the people who are behind the Bernie movement, the people who were Bernie supporters of people who are on the left, mm-hmm. or even some Warren supporters, I think as well, right? Like some of these sort of wealthier yeah, sure. suburban people, I think they're all going to go different ways. And uh, we're going to have like third parties and we're going to have, you know, very, very, especially as the climate change stuff starts amping up. Have you seen Akira? The yeah. anime from the 80s? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the old one, yeah. I yeah, like the dystopian, I think it's, it's going yeah. to yeah. be like Akira. You, know, you, got, <laughs> <laughs> you get all these, you have all these different groups, you know, you have like uh, people believing in certain conspiracy theories. I think QAnon will grow, yeah. you know, and I think we'll just have these mass movements all over the country. That'd be kind of like Great Awakening. I know that everybody says that in terms oh of God. like, you know, woke culture, which I think is fucking stupid just because, you know, it's not, it doesn't have any appeal. Like nobody actually likes, you know, white fragility nobody likes going to <laughs> diversity seminars people do like some conspiracy theories and charismatic leaders and stuff like that and i don't know i don't think it's necessarily the worst thing going forward at least for me personally you know um at <laughs> least for I, you personally yeah i think it'll be more entertaining i might join a couple too you oh, know okay. I'm a, just like i don't i don't know i was i was looking at the Hare krishnas today um and <laughs> i don't know that's old like, school that's like 80s yeah it's like appealing in some sort of way you yeah know? totally like no it's i not. do believe I that there's like what you guys are talking about I do believe that there's like a way in which people can repeat words over and over again, like a prayer to God, because every single religion has like a repeated prayer, right? Yeah. So like in Christianity, a it's mantra, Lord's, yeah, yeah, Lord's Prayer, and Zen Buddhism, it's like a, it's like a mantra, um, and in uh, Hare Krishna, it's like saying Hare Krishna and dancing mm-hmm. and unleashing something within you, um, you know, like J.D. Salinger's like uh, Franny and Zoe is all about like the Lord's prayer or the Jesus prayer saying over and over again, you know, dear God, I'm a sinner, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I've been looking at that sort of stuff. I feel like How that's is that appealing? Out. I don't know. It just seems like, you know, it's like something to occupy the brain while the body rots, you know, yeah. and um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of that sort of stuff will come back. Like there will be like a resurgence. I don't know why I'm using this time to just like put out all my crackpot theories while you two just like stare at me like somebody I've, called I've lost jay's wife <laughs> but, it is but, it is it is hard to imagine getting the country back on one page again if it ever if was it ever, right yeah, i mean fair. that's what i don't i just feel like i don't know but at least you didn't have elites and scientists just saying completely opposite things all the time and i yeah. and like having crazy conspiracy theories where um every event is just kind of there's already like an automatic built-in set of like three or four different alternative conspiracies and yeah. i mean yeah you're right like it was never a single country to begin with it was always disparate and there was always you know like anyone who wasn't a rich white man was always kind of marginalized from 
public discourse and all that. Um, so in a way, it's like, I guess we should be happy that it's been kind of splintered because it allows for people like us to talk, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't know. So maybe we have to go with like the devolution plan and just have every state, not even state, every like every every local locality just kind of watch, you know, mm. yeah, watch out for themselves. I don't know. I'm um, okay. Hmm. Uh, let's go to our second topic today. Oh. We want to. <laughs> that was the weirdest <laughs> conversation that we've had. Uh, but, check for uh, Twitter updates on Trump. <laughs> we oh can God. probably cut a lot of it. Uh, the uh, <laughs> although I doubt I will, just because I'm just kind of curious to see what people think. <laughs> um, the uh, the the second thing we wanted to talk about is we wanted to go back and talk about the coronavirus a little bit. When we started the show, we had a lot of alternate names that we were thinking about. One of them was like the wet market. The other one was like Pangolin Radio Hour and stuff like that. And so, at the beginning, the coronavirus uh, was really Radio front. Hour. Yeah, it was the front and center of our mind. Yeah, the pangolin power hour. hour. (laughs) Um, Eat one pangolin scale every three minutes, and by the end, you know, see how many infectious diseases you've picked up. Oh, man. I miss those days. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't. I think this is better than those days. Those days were worse. When I you're know. Just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I can't go out of my house. I, I was like afraid to touch anything. You Wiping know? your boxes like with miserable. Yeah, that yeah. was just Andy, yeah. though. Going to the fucking grocery <laughs> store. I I think it's the least happy I've ever been in my life. One day when I like was just when I was living in Oakland and we we're in an Airbnb. And I went grocery shopping and I bought like $400 of groceries so we wouldn't have to go out again. And I sat on the porch with like a gigantic box of bleach wipes and bleach wiped every box. And I was like, I was like, this is the most. See, this is the most. A lot of people did this. Ever in. I've ever been in my life. Those wipes are. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Those wipes are still sold out. People are still doing this. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Because I was like, it wasn't the, it wasn't the, yeah, you know, it wasn't the unpleasantness of the labor of having to like wipe down all these boxes, although yeah. it's fucking suck. It's more just like, when is this going to end? Yeah. You know, and uh, how did it get That's this true. way? Like, I, I don't know. It was, it was yeah. absolutely. Miserable, I remember so. taking my daughter out for walks and like constantly giving her hand sanitizer for like oh. touching a metal, you know, like handlebar or something, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like. We yeah. still kind of do that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I feel like concern over coronavirus is like going to lead to a lot of white flighty type of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I can already see it. Like I went to Costco, and you know, you go into this Costco in Richmond, California. There's a lot of different types of people there. And the people who have like their masks under their noses or like around their chins, generally not white, you know, (laughs) and I can see like the, I felt it too, you know, just like this resentment about it from like the more like techie white people, Uh, you know, and that's everywhere. I think it's happening in the country. I'm not saying that only people of color don't wear masks, but I'm saying that I think that (laughs) like it's going to calcify into some sort of class resentment more than racial resentment, you know? Yeah. It's going to be like, Oh, well, if these people can't abide by this and they're threatening my life, then I'm going to just be around people who do, you know? Hmm. Um, I, I think know. that's that is happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, all right. So to get to our topic, which is we want to talk about this article by Zainab Tufechi. She's a uh, writer who I'm sure that a lot of you have followed on Twitter. Uh, she writes for a lot of different places. I think she is a professor at the University of North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, her thing is basically she just is 
has interesting ideas and she generally is very strident about expressing them. And a lot of times she's very right. And I think on coronavirus, she tended to be very right. She was very up in front and center with masks. You know, she really questioned and fucking torched a lot of the media people who were saying (laughs) masks don't work, you know, which is awesome to watch as like on the side, let's just go fucking get those people at box, (laughs) you know? I, I'm a big fan of hers. I think yeah. that she is cool. Um, and I think that she is like, uh, you know, she is sort of the troll. She has enough troll in her while also mm-hmm. being right that, so you know, I think people are terrified of her. And I think that's awesome. So <laughs> she, um, she like took on Nate Silver early on and it was great. I was like, I was liking all of her tweets so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The double like. Um, (laughs) All right. So she wrote an article and the idea is that coronavirus is like a over what she calls like an over dispersed pathogen. I don't think she's the only person who says it, but she uses this term, which means that it doesn't really spread evenly, but that through a minority of major super spreader events, for example, like the one that just happened in the White House, that uh, (laughs) you are going to that's how it spreads is that small super spreader events lead to massive outbreaks. And then it is not like a one-to-one type of thing. So, for example, like the way that we used to think about it in the past, Andrew and you and I were walking, wiping down all of our bleach, right? Like all of our groceries with bleach. The way that people thought about the coronavirus was that like any person could have it and that per- every single person is at equal risk to contract it and to spread it. And that ends up not being true. Some people spread way more of the virus. And, you know, maybe it's Donald Trump. You know, maybe it's Hope Hicks. Maybe it's like, I don't know, uh, Kellyanne Conway or whoever Chris Chris Christie being the super spreader would be the funniest part. It's just like he kind of looks like he kind of looks like everywhere, yeah. like walking up the stairs, he's just sweating everywhere, just sweat pouring out of his body. <laughs> it's like just fucking COVID everywhere. You use the COVID camera, and there's just this gigantic cloud of like frown frowny face emojis around Chris Chris Christie all the time going to people's noses and lungs. Um, yeah, so Chris Chris. Uh, that's people like that are responsible for it. Now, I think we've known about this for a long time. People will call it either like asymmetric spread or they call it heterogeneous mm-hmm. spread, right? Um, and uh, or the heterogeneity spread, and that some people are at less risk. So, younger people are actually not just at li- less risk to die from coronavirus, but they're at li- less risk to contract coronavirus. Um, I wanted to talk about it just because I think that this was a good survey and a way for us to sort of re, you know, reset what we were doing. Uh, and what we were talking about in terms of the virus. And so part of it, um, I'll read to you here. A recent paper found that in Hong Kong, which had extensive testing and contact tracing, about 19% of cases were responsible for 80% of transmission, while 69% of cases did not infect other people. Nature and society are replete with such imbalanced phenomena, some of which are said to work according to the Pareto principle, named after the sociologist Wilfredo Pareto, Pareto's insight is sometimes called the 80-20 principle. 80% of outcomes of interest are caused by 20% of inputs, though the numbers don't have to be that strict. Rather, the Pareto principle is that a small number of events or people are responsible for the majority of consequences. Um, So, Andy, what do you think of this article? Uh, I think the thing that to make it, just to kind of make what she's saying, uh, to distinguish this from what we used to think as sharp as possible is she kind of tackles this concept I'm sure everyone has heard of like R the R number right where the mm-hmm. thought was like if you get could get the average number of people who get infected underneath one then this like solves everything and she's saying the problem with R is that it's 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 an average and it therefore like flattens 
the way that this stuff really works. Um, and so she's replacing it with this, you know, this this variable k that she's that's comes in a lot of scientific journals. I think what was interesting is especially in the second half of the article. Uh, I mean, so many of her examples are from Asia, which perhaps gives you a sense of how much research is actually being being done in Asia. There's yeah. Hong Kong, there's Taiwan, or not Taiwan. There's a South Korea and there's Japan in the article. And I think she makes an interesting argument that most of these sort of cross-national comparisons assumed that there was some sort of linear relationship between like factors and, you know, the end result. Meaning, you know, if you could measure how much, I don't know, like um, just like how many people were infected on a given day that could, you could somehow like put in a math formula and come up with some, some, some um, answer about how many people would get infected in a month. And she's, you know, she says, obviously that didn't happen in places like Italy, it exploded and in places like Japan, it never did. Um, so I think she actually does undermine, I think, a certain type of cross national comparison, the kind that, you know, everyone, uh, the summer became sort of this like amateur comparative sociologist this summer. Right? <laughs> and, and she's kind of saying like that, that, that that's based on a certain assumption about how this works, that scientists now, you know, are, are feel pretty confident that that's, that's, you know, there's no basis for that. Yeah, so from the piece, and Tammy, I want you to respond to this, is that uh, she talks a lot about South Korea, and she says, uh, over-dispersion has also caused her hope as South Korea's aggressive and successful response to that outbreak with a massive testing, tracing, and isolating regime shows. Since then, South Korea has also been practicing sustained vigilance and has demonstrated the importance of backwards testing. Um, when a series of clusters linked to nightclubs broke out in Seoul recently, health authorities aggressively traced it and ten tested tens of thousands of people linked to the venues, regardless of their interactions with the index case, six feet apart or not, a sensible response given that we know the pathogen is airborne. Um, like what it's can you can you just update a little bit on like what what is going on, you know, in Korea? Sure. I'm just looking at the numbers, so I don't know too much more than that, but I mean they there were dangers of or fears of kind of a second wave, which I think they've had some upticks, you know, late summer and fall and that have, that have really freaked people out there compared to here, obviously they're negligible and, you know, don't even really register proportionally. Um, I think what stood out for me in this piece as Andy was saying in terms of cross national comparison is I felt like, her conclusion shows that cross-national comparison is useful when we're talking about responses, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is like kind of where our show, we've always been interested in that because it's kind of like, you know, who the hell knows where things actually are going to happen. I think on some level that's kind of commonsensical, but she indexes, you know, res responsive methods. Like in her discussion of Japan, she talks about, I mean, which has been really mysterious, I think. Yeah. And this section like kind of reads a little bit like LDP propaganda, but whatever, it's fine. Um, but she <laughs> was, you know, basically saying like Japan, it's kind of unclear, like why they haven't had that many cases. Obviously, it's a super dense country. But the two things she points out are like they always targeted clusters and they always talked about ventilation. You know, yeah. so they kind of just got that right. And, you know, but I think. I am in, I have been and continue to be interested in the countries that have done the best in terms of like figuring out a response and sticking to it. Like Taiwan you read I think that, is the best probably. And Vietnam is really good too. Did you oh, read yeah, that Vietnam that too. that theory that Jap that it didn't spread in Japan cuz Japanese people 
uh, talk quietly. <laughs> yes. The prob- oh my god, the like <laughs> the prob- tissue thing. <laughs> the prob- yeah. There was they like don't a have, tissue like, heart. YouTube video of like yeah. a Japanese person talking and it was like oh, just right. barely yeah, it moved. Blow. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, because the they don't have like many like sibilant sounds, you yeah. know. Whereas like it- Italy is all just spitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So oh there's a the. the uh, there is a point that I want us to discuss in depth for the rest of our, you know, for, uh, in here. And it's, it's this idea that she writes about here. And she says, why haven't our usual analytic tools, case studies, multi-country comparisons given us better answers? And Andy, you discussed some of this. So, but why Daegu in February and not Seoul? This is in South Korea. Despite the two cities being in the same country under the same government, people weathered more. As frustrating as it may, as frustrating as it may be, sometimes the answer is merely where patient 31 in the mega church she attended happened to be. So the argument that she's making here essentially is that we in our heads construct these entire narratives of why certain countries are more successful than other countries, right? And we say, oh, it's because they use masks. Oh, it's because Donald Trump isn't the president, you know? Oh, it's because, uh, you know, they listen to their scientists. Oh, it's because they they have uh, cleaner sanitation. Oh, it's because people don't talk as loudly and spit in each other's <laughs> mouth. And they're like talking about like, you know, like, fuck, like Juventus or whatever, you know? Um, Instead, uh, and all of those come together and, and they become politicized. And in the America, it's very clear what that political story is, right? Which is that Donald country sold out the Donald Trump sold out the country and he didn't listen to the scientists. He he pretended it was a hoax, you know, and that it's all his fault and Republican senators fault. And then the Republican st- story is that it's not a big deal. Right. So those are the two sides of the story. I don't know. Zainab's piece, I think, is probably right in terms of the fact that maybe those narratives aren't real, you know, like maybe it is not about a lot of things that happen, uh, that those things have small inputs and those things have, can make differences around the margins, but we still don't actually know why some places got massive clusters and massive outbreaks and others don't. And it reminds me of, you know, baseball in terms of like the way that people's understanding of baseball changed. Whereas before they think, oh, this pitcher is like, you know, it's about his mental makeup. It's about his stuff. It's about the way in which he like goes to a game. It's whether he's tough. It's whether he's a gamer, you know, and the hitter is the same thing as this guy clutch is this not clutch. And over, you know, compiling other day, you find that it's all basically random, right? Yeah. Like a pitcher is responsible for strikeouts. That's about it. And home runs, right? If, and everything else is like the fielders. And so you invest in defense, for example. Like that's the type of thing that changes. And the whole understanding of everything changes at that point in baseball. Basketball, it's the same way, right? Like, you know, is it if you shoot this many threes from the corner and this many go in, all you can really do is fiddle with the averages and hope more go in on a certain night. But like, it's kind of random if they go in or they don't go in. I don't know. Like, I, it, it's a very interesting argument that she's making because I think fundamentally she's basically saying that political responses mean much less than we think they do. And uh, I don't know. Really? I find I have two responses to that because the first yeah, is I, that... I think Tammy and I are, have a... But go okay, on. Yeah, go I don't yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what no, she's no, saying, but you can finish your thought. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. I want, I, want, I want to hear... You don't think that's what she's saying. I don't think that's what she's saying. I think she's saying all that stuff matters, but like the specific like allocation and spread, there we still there's still mysteries around it, you know? Yeah. But I think... like... All the stuff you listed, except for like the Japanese soft talking, <laughs> like those things do matter, you know, like maybe, yes, it's random that like there wasn't the patient 31 in like Omaha versus New York or whatever. But then we just compounded 
basically like if there is a betting culture, like we made all of the bad bets like every day over and over again. Yeah, and I think she's saying that the one thing that you can control is not having super spreading events like 30 people mm-hmm. or whatever in a room. And um, I think I think what's interesting is she's kind of making this argument, like Tammy said, that we tend to make it anyway, which is we tend to think of it as a political argument, right? It's up to the people in power rather than the people. And that's kind of our leftist whatever instinct. And I think that's still true. But she's even saying it's this is a apolitical scientific argument. That the only way to stop it is not about it's not about like allocating power and forcing the elites to, you know, live up to their job. It's just simply about the only way to stop this is to literally have um, an authority figure clamp down on like super spreader events. Um, and in that particular mm-hmm. in, in that particular sense, then it's not about like, you know, class and democracy. And it's just about like you do need that is one way that Trump definitely makes a difference, right? That Trump yeah. from a, just from a scientific I don't know if the word physical is right with physiological, but chemical perspective. Um, I So I think she's saying cross-national comparisons that look at things like the culture or society, right? Things that you were kind of talking about, like masks or not. She's saying that's a little bit iffy, but I do and think- That's overdetermined. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I do, I do think right. that she is kind of being, she's making her own kind of cross-national comparison at the same time. And it's about cross-national like government responses. Right. Well, look, I I have some experience with this just because I worked in you know sports media, and you basically are taught essentially randomness as a religion, right? Like mm-hmm. you are taught like this is these are new sports writers, not the old ones, right? But because the old <laughs> narrative is so toxic and so dumb, you basically overcorrect and you basically argue that every single thing is random, right? Mm-hmm. And that nothing matters. So like Clayton Kershaw, for example, the pitcher for the Dodgers, can have like fifteen bad playoff games. And people will still argue like that it's just random. You know, he just happened to have his bad games all in the playoffs, which, you know, at some point becomes ridiculous, yeah. right? Um, so you've oh, overcorrected for that. So my brain in some ways is trained to overcorrect and believe in randomness. But I do remember during the first days of the coronavirus, you look at all these maps, the first few months, look at all these maps, you look at all these outbreaks happening. You know, you look for things like what countries have the BCG fucking vaccine, you know, mm. like which ones don't. You try and find any sort of correlation that comes up they all have cancelable things that make them not re- not cancelable in that sense, but you know, like they have the, they have like they have there are other counterexamples that make the theory null and void, right? So, for example, like uh, like I don't know, like Ecuador had a horrible outbreak, but they have the BCG vaccine, right? Oh, really? And so okay. then you're just like, all right, well, you know, if they're having sure. these horror, if people are piling up in the streets there, then probably maybe this is you know, like it, it's maybe they used a different strain of the vaccine or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I thought I, he. I thought he was going to stop it. Uh, that was my, you know, in the in the springtime, I thought yeah, he was right. going to stop it. Oh, he was going to stop. Talking it. Yeah, about yeah. That, right? It did sort of stop it. It did in Europe, you know, where people went outside and they stopped huddling indoors, and Europe's transmission numbers went down. But um, I don't know. I guess my only point here is that if you are over, you know, like if we take the political determinism out of it, or if we just say like, let's sh- shave off like 80%, I, I think that's what she would basically suggest that maybe this is overdetermined by like, not just like 10%, but mu- far more than that. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know actually how we even engage with the virus at that point, even if it's real, you know, like, I think we create these political stories around it to make sense of it, obviously, not to like be totally Joan Didion about it. But like, you know, like we create stories. <laughs> to live or whatever that quote is that (laughs) um i don't know like how how do what like if this is true right then we're kind of helpless like isn't that like sort of the 
alternative is like you just don't know what's exactly going to happen and that the little things that you do don't actually matter that much you know but they matter a little bit around the edges i don't know i think it's a little bit of a dangerous argument and i actually think in the end what it leads to this is nothing about zeynep i just think these are the practical things that will come out of it is that it will lead to a type of race realism or like a type of race science that will be you know destructive how so well, I think that people would just be like, well, why are all the people who die from coronavirus people of color in the United States? You know, why is it just like brown and black people who are dying from the virus? I feel like she's making the opposite argument, though, right? She's saying we need to not do the, st- the kind of stuff that Adolf Reed is concerned about. We need to look at, like, what did the governments concretely do around particular things we know for sure? Which are around. No, like, I agree. Like, but I'm right? saying in but the then- absence in the absence of a clear political determinative explanation that generally what creeps in is like you know like eugenical arguments yeah like if if we all say we don't know and the results are all the results you know and people will craft race-based and like fascist eugenical arguments to fill that in that's why i feel like we have been yeah, I think I think she's saying. I mean, she's basically yeah. saying. Uh, now, do you really think that? Do you think that there is like a? Do you think there is a loud voice saying that like black and brown people are dying because they're like genetically deficient? Not loud. I think a lot of the, I, Yeah, I think like a fair amount of the reporting basically intimated that because it Including was saying like. like like left, yeah, like left, left wing, left wing exactly. journalists, right? Yeah, like this sort of like poverty reductive stuff that was uh, like, oh, they're all they all have diabetes and like they don't have access to food, you know, just like stupid <laughs> shit that was like, and it's like, no, actually, like the governments aren't giving masks and like opportunities to like have space and like air, like you know, I just so I don't know, I. I think she's pointing us in a different direction, which is like, look at systematic response. Political yeah. stuff does matter. I think, yeah, I think she's saying most of that stuff. I think she's, it's a both, it's both, right? I think she does agree with Jay that for the most part, a lot of things that we think matter don't matter. But I do think she says like the one thing we can do is, I mean, she's basically saying, let's just be like Japan and South Korea, right? They were the ones who stopped the super spread and they were the ones who did, uh, I forget, like a particular type of contract, contact tracing, mm-hmm. not the like generic, just like figure out where you got it from or f- figure out who you talked to, but also figure out where you got it from. Cause that's more important. Cause if it, I know I got it from like one of you, then I know one of you probably gave it to 20 other people. Mm-hmm. As but opposed to you, just. You right. can't do that though, because we don't have the ability to tra- t- test and trace. We don't, but Japan doesn't either. And that was, and that was kind of like yeah. one of the takeaways, like yeah. Japan confessed, like they didn't have the capacity to do all that. Um, but they took small measures like limiting, you know, amounts of space, amounts of people in one space that, you know, as, as a very sort of primitive solution does kind of kind of place a limit on how many people can, can get infected in a super spreader event. Um, I, so, I guess, go ahead, Andy. Yeah. I mean, no, just, ahead, I think, I think she's saying that there's a minimalist from, there's a minimalist mm-hmm. sense of a type of solution that we can rely upon, but she is kind of also saying like, there's a lot of it. We just, it's just kind of, you know, she calls it stochastic. Like it's just out of our control. Right. Yeah, it just means random. So like uh, the thing for yeah. me, the distinction is essentially, and this is something that she complains about a lot on Twitter, which I agree with, which is that basically right now, liberals in America believe that this is a mor- moral question yeah. and is moral political question. And is, do you care about other people more than Republicans right. care about other people? So like, are you going to go to the beach and be a redneck and do your pro- dumb protests? And like, you know, 
get drunk and have redneck sex while listening to Leonard Skinner. Like that's, I'm not saying that, look, I like Leonard Skinner and I'm not saying that this is what I say, but this is sort of the liberal fantasy of who's spreading this thing. Right. You ever heard like, that oh, in Berkeley somewhere? Oh my God, not on my, amazing. not in Berkeley, but you know, I bet Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I grew up, it's, it's the general basic idea. These rednecks in Hillsborough are spreading this coronavirus, you know, out in Pittsburgh. I just want to like, know what redneck like, sex they're is. They're just like fucking their cousins. And like, like, it's like, I, I, I'm very attuned to this type of like, uh, you know, yeah. liberal morality, individualistic, mm-hmm. down to the person's personal choices, right? And I think that's the big thing takeaway from this article, which is that it's not about that. Sure. One person that's going to the true. beach and even acting irresponsibly in the beach, like I don't know, like grinding with one another, like you know, <laughs> playing beach <laughs> volleyball and, and whispering in each other's ears, like this is the play. Like I don't think that that she's saying that that stuff doesn't really matter. It's not that that matters. It's the systematic stuff that matters. Yeah. At the same time, the systematic stuff matters less than yes. you would think okay, it would. Okay, fair enough. I think. That's okay, true. but in. Still, I think within that realm where we can't make a personal choice about it, right? Like where our personal choices don't matter and our government isn't going to do any of the shit that she suggests. Yeah. It actually leads to like a type of nihilism and hopelessness. And I don't think that's her fault. She's a journalist. I have literally zero problem with her saying this because it's true. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we can't like asking the country to embrace this mentality is actually not a good idea. You know, like if she could magically wave a wand, she'd be like, all you libs who complain about the beach or people who don't wear masks, like shut up, uh, you know, pressure your, call your senator and ask them to do X, Y, and Z. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like, um, it seems like we need those, we need those individualized, moralized, moralistic stories to like get through it, to you know, to yeah. feel like we have any sort of agency over this thing. When we but don't. it still matters that like, my students that I sit two feet across from in a room wear their masks and feel like, and don't go to like frat parties. Right. Yeah. That matters. So I hope to you. Yeah. But like, it won't like, you know, it's not gonna, it's either one of those kids is going to start a super spreader event or they're not, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We're, I don't, I don't think we're like we're like trimming. We're like trimming yeah. around the edges. I think is what she's saying. When we believe that these individual things are the key to all of it. Yes, and at the same time, like a super spreader event is like a series of decisions by people to go to a congregation, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, because we're having a frat and athletics breakout here, and I'm just like, who are these? fuckwads are doing this you where know? <laughs> we're all wearing our masks and like sweating you know like yeah. i'm i'm chris christie sweating in the hallway like this is ridiculous you know, I know. <laughs> yeah I mean, if you spend like five years in the academy i think you're gonna be like the professor at campus that all the athletes hate you know <laughs> like you're gonna be setting it's already up happening. every six months you're gonna send a new petition to cancel the football team you know and it's gonna be written in like increasingly unhinged language you know be like, the patriarchy of expressed by like you know like this like violent sport you know which was proven to link to six super spreader events during the coronavirus outbreak in 2020 (laughs) that'll be great oh all right um okay so should we read a couple uh letters from our listeners I put together a few if we want to, if you have time to. Okay, do so. Andy, yeah. let's go. Let's do it. We're gonna we're gonna need 
a lot of content here. Just half of this podcast right now is me throwing out intensely like stone theories. About, I'm not I'm not stoned right now, but like these are theories that I think about at late at night around eleven o'clock while sitting on while sitting on my cot in my yard. All right, so go ahead. Uh, well, we got three questions that roughly revolve around this question of people who are of means trying to hide their identity, trying to hide the fact that they are of means. Let's say. So one comes from Janice Jean, Jean, I think is uh, Jean, who says, like Tammy, I did an undergrad at Yale, where I, I felt that... to read that part. <laughs> Whoa, Tammy, we're not hiding right, anymore. <laughs> Seriously. Guys, I'm exactly. so embarrassed. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Tammy, you have to go first. Like yeah. Tammy, I did undergrad at Yale, where I felt that class really, really structured everything. Friendships, social circles, classroom dynamics, but went totally unacknowledged. There was also an interesting phenomenon where wokest POC activists, ethnic studies majors were often the kids of professors and lawyers, uh, not any empirical fact, just my own observation. So perhaps like drawing a connection between kind of deflecting from class among the sort of upper class POC. Yeah. Um, another one is in, this is from someone in Soledad Kyrie is her Twitter handle um, in, re in response to our Krug, Jessica Krug discussion. She's uh, this person is saying there's an acceptable universal contract in academia among white guys in academic humanities, that it's not only allowable to like, let's say, shapeshift or kind of take on different identities, but especially that you should definitely invent a quote unquote working class background if you haven't already. <laughs> Is uh, that true? That's so funny. Yeah, I think it might Did be like running for office. <laughs> I didn't invent one, but you know, you you don't you obviously don't want to come off as a super rich kid. You know, you want to talk about how you at least went to like a. Uh, public, public high school, school or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh That's so God. funny. Yeah. Um, the third one we need right. to read, but it comes from Lisa, who kind of points us to a Guardian article which talks about the same thing about how the mm -hmm. cool thing among millennials now, regardless of their class background, or actually, especially if you know, for the wealthiest millennials, is that um, including like celebrities like the Kardashians, is to kind of adopt like a kind of faux Bernie esque politics and um, criticize and and, uh, and like de deflect from their own personal privileges. Um, so I guess it's fashionable now for, for millennials is what this Guardian article says. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if there's any response, I don't know if Tammy wants to be the first to. Uh... <laughs> Tammy. <laughs> with the Yale, Yale. Yeah. Or like, Yale what what is up with this? Yeah. What What is up with this? It seems like it's a class-based phenomenon of not talking about class. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, my one... I I guess what I was thinking first is that I think it's good for rich people to get involved in class based organizing. And I don't think that any shame around their class should deter them from say becoming a union organizer. Um, but this anxiety that she's talking about, I find really interesting. I don't know if I noticed this so much when I was, in school. I don't know if you guys did. I think we had fairly frank conversations about like, well, what do your parents do and where are you from? And it was also the first time I'd ever really met rich people. Um, like Northeast rich, which is different. Like very rich. Yeah. Or like really just, or just plain old rich, honestly, because they really didn't even know that yeah. many people who like went to private school or anything. But um, yeah, I don't know if this is, is this a new phenomenon? among millennials or is it just um well that yeah know. that's that's a separate one i do think I'm that there is that. i mean i think what this is getting at is this question which you kind of hit on is like how do we want to think about class 
And there's a, should we think of class as like identity? Yeah. Right. Where like it structures the way we act and, and therefore like, you know, if you're a leftist, should you sort of um, think poorly of someone for their class background, you know, in a sort of cultural revolution kind of way Uh, (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, or is it like, but you know, one could say like, if you go in the opposite direction where you say it doesn't matter like, is that also like a way for people to deflect from thinking about their own privileges and, you know, the way that it actually does matter uh, in a lot of ways? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. I think that it's something that is essentially very old, right? But yeah. it is yeah. within a very specific set of people. So I don't think that when people, you know, meet up at the um, bar and, you know, that, this is like the most ridiculous you know like i don't know like they like go out with their friends who they went to ohio state with or something like that and they all work in an accounting firm i don't think that those people invent working class backgrounds for one another right Right. i think this is a phenomenon among the elite of the elite in media and the academy and i do think it's a real phenomenon and i think that it's essentially the way in which People feel small class differences so intensely in those spaces, right? Um, Especially when you go to college and you're just like, holy shit, these people are richer in ways that I don't actually understand. Tammy, I felt the same way when I went to college, which is I I grew up in like a pretty upper middle class town, but I didn't know people who are like, you know, related to like the Bush family and stuff like that. (laughs) And so you go there and you meet people who are actually rich as opposed to upper middle class. And it feels like there's this massive gulf of privilege between you and them. Maybe there is, but, you know, I would argue not, you know, yeah. not like the your bank accounts look different, but your opportunities might be right. different because they have connections. But like you're talking about small gradations, you're both extremely privileged, right? right? And I think as a way to manifest that in your personal life, right, so that you are not actually admitting to yourself that my real problem is that I am an upper middle class person who wants to get to become like a Bush family member, but I'll never get there because I wasn't born in the Bush family. And that this is a source of a lot of my resentments and my, it actually shapes a lot of the way that I look at the world. You can't really admit that to yourself because it's petty, it's stupid, it's completely unsympathetic. And so I do think that people mm-hmm. do kind of trend towards like building these sort of myths about themselves and their, and their backgrounds. Now, I see this all the time with Asians, right? Like, uh, like I feel like there's almost this set standard Asian narrative where they talk about like the struggle right? Mm-hmm. and they talk about like they have something about like I don't know like some guy like called it the smelly lunchbox story but that's like part of <laughs> yeah. something right? every every Asian person knows what I'm talking about yeah. here but like um it also ends with like you know like we were poor at this point of our time like my parents came here with nothing yeah. and right. the parents came might have come here with nothing but they also like came here with like fucking two master's degrees and a job to work at IBM or something like that. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I think that, 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 that sort of does happen. And I think it's because people don't want to admit the pettiness of like the actual class differences that they feel. I don't know. That's my theory. Yeah. Not to oversight, like pathologize people, which I did, but you know, it's by general theory. Yeah. Andy. So that thing about how people in the Academy are basically like doing the things that politicians do where they're like, <laughs> Yeah. My grandfather worked in a pit or whatever. Like, so you see that in the Academy? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, you know, I don't want to like accuse anyone of anything. Some people really are just like, do come from much more humbler backgrounds, much more humbler. Uh, Like I, I like if, if you put me on the spot, I could invent 
And I wouldn't be lying, right? But I could just like emphasize certain parts of yeah. my background. Like you probably like you all, like kid of yeah. immigrants didn't have anything two generations ago, went to a public high school. That right. puts you in a different social circle than, you know, the Bushes or the Kennedys at, at the Ivy Leagues. Um, and I mean, I think what I, I can remember like in college, um, they're just like people where you like, you didn't get them. Like you don't get their, their life choices and their behavior and the way, the fact that they're so blasé about certain things and they're like doing, doing these things in secret. And then 10 years later, you realize they're in a secret society. Yeah. And like their life was already wow. like decided for them. And, and yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing where I feel like you kind of, you, that, that does make you feel like, you know, we all come from like probably middle to upper middle class, if not backgrounds and like opportunities that we faced. But then when you do come across, when you do come against that type of unimaginable wealth, I don't know, maybe that kind of makes you feel a little, like Jay was saying, makes you feel a little smaller and you kind of double down uh, on this, on this identity to perhaps rationalize to yourself why you weren't going to be a Bush or a, or a, or a Kennedy. I don't know. Um, but I, uh, I also think that it, it gives you an identity that is American as well for people who are immigrants. Yeah. That, um, I actually read a chapter of my upcoming book about the exact thing that you outlined, Andy, and it's like, I don't know, it, it'll sound horrifically meta when I explain it here, but it is about like trying to figure out different ways to tell my own story, right? Like, do I do the thing that everyone does and say like, my parents arrived in the United States with like two, with two suitcases from a war-torn country, you know, where they grew up in total poverty and they're refugees from like the, from North Korea, which all true, right? Um, and then do I focus on the fact that for a while, when we moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, we lived in a housing project that's very famous that everybody who's been in Cambridge knows. It's like across from Alewife Station, like three towers going up into the sky. It gets like the most visible housing project in all of Cambridge. We live there. This is also true, you know? Yeah. But same time, my father was like getting a PhD at Harvard, you know, yeah. and like yeah. so in, 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 in chemistry. And so like, how do you tell that story? Right. You know, like, how do you like, there is a very easy way for me to choose all these bad things and say like, you know, like my grandfather's going to be executed and my parents moved here and we lived in, you know, we weren't rich and, you know, it actually wasn't until like we were in middle, I was in middle school where we had that much money. My mother was like a babysat, like the kids of professors at MIT and Harvard. All those things are true, yeah. right. To like help make ends meet. But uh, I think that you tell that story in that way because you want to feel more American yeah. if you're an immigrant yeah. because you want to be part buy into this capitalist yeah. thing. And the irony is that even if you're a leftist and you reject capitalism, you tell that story to make yourself yeah. have yeah. To be more of the working class. And so almost every single thing incentivizes you to tell it that way. Yeah. Right. But nobody ever tells it that way yeah. or the other way. Right. Which is that, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is like as from an intellectual perspective, have there's an obvious criticism that you shouldn't personalize any of this. It's not really about personal privilege. It's about these large structures and so on and so on. But it's also true that like, you know, like one on one conversations with friends and stuff inevitably comes up and you can't help but think about, you know, the people, you know, your colleagues or your mutual friends and think about how class shapes them and shapes you and shapes your perception so it's there's something kind of inescapable about it even if you know intellectually right like that that, that that's not that's not how it works that it that these are like forces that go beyond individuals or families and people have complex lives so yeah i don't know i think it's yeah like there's like a, almost like a psychic element to it more than a sort of like intellectual sociological dimension to it i i i generally also think that it's extremely destructive in terms of you know uh 
like I think that the differences that people point out in those spaces are so tiny and that like I actually tweeted about this before and I was you know I was like yelling at Matt Iglesias it's like Matt Iglesias went to Dalton and he went to Harvard you know but like part of like the strange like uh, the strange like aphasia around media people and all these culture war things is that all these things are like class resentments that are tiny class resentments that are expressed all the time and that part of that is like somebody like me who went grew up in Chapel in North Carolina went to Chapel High School which is a very good public high school getting mad at like kids who went to Dalton right <laughs> which is like an elite New York City private school and it's like what's the real difference there you know like, what's the difference between going to Bowdoin and going to Columbia for grad school and going to Harvard like there's almost there's no difference right but like they become very meaningful in people's heads. And the reason they become very meaningful is because you hate that other person, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate Matty Glaces, but like, you know, like you hate somebody and you need to feel a way for it. And I don't know why, but for some reason, like making them richer than they are and making yourself mm -hmm. poorer than you are yeah. seems to be a real go-to yeah. like, in that type of thing. Yeah. And I do think it's tied into, well, I had to struggle for what I earned more than he, that, that person had to struggle for what they earned. They were just given it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a, perhaps a rationalization if you feel frustrated yeah. or disappointed. But all of it is like antithetical towards, you know, any sort of anti-capitalist thinking, right? Like you, sh like you shouldn't really care if it was harder for you to like, accumulate capital by like eight percent than the other guy <laughs> when, yeah. the, when the when the other people are like dying of coronavirus <laughs> yeah i mean i think this is also getting at this you know you were i forget what the context was we had some like anecdote earlier about how people in berkeley more or less like their lives are better under trump but they just choose to be anti-trump as liberals i mean i think this I think this is, gets at this dynamic that I think for a lot of upper middle class people, politics is basically this choice that gets yeah. made that it get that is not, and people can choose for whatever reason. I don't, I don't have a good explanation. Like people probably like us and our friends, right? We could easily have comfortable material lives uh, embracing, you know, opportunities in education that our education opens up for us, but we choose to, you know, like vote for and politically support and try to identify with, um, you know, those who have had fewer, fewer opportunities. And um, I don't know, I don't know why, you know, there's like this crossroads and I could certainly have, I, I had, I went to school with many people who did not choose that, choose that path on the crossroad. I think they went the other way. Yeah. And if they're not Trump supporters, they're just, you know, they're just very like apologetic for, you know, banks or like the government or the Democratic Party. So I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's just kind of like this crossroads that's not necessarily structured by your class where you come from. Yeah. I think our yeah. conversation, though, has focused on, like, upper middle class kids and, like, rich kids. But I don't want to erase the fact that, like, even at elite schools, like, and we're, we've been talking kind of about, like, Asian immigrant kids, that there are kids who are, like, poor and, like, yeah. super struggling. Like, a lot of my friends, I mean, yeah. I yeah, I won't go into my own situation, but, like, my a couple of friends at Yale <laughs> were, like, their parents were, like, homeless. Well, wow. And, like... You know, they were their parents were like addicted to drugs and like there's a lot of shit going on. And so, I mean, those people don't talk about their class background there. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's pretty different. But anyway, I just want to I like want to acknowledge that because I think there there is a difference. Like those yeah. kids. Yes, they are encountering an opportunity. And like a few of those friends have like make good money now. And, you know, everyone's like they're doing fine, obviously, because they had a path 
Yeah. But their time there was really, really hard. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, as always, you can get in touch with us at TTSGpod on Twitter, or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Um, keep the listener questions coming. We really do enjoy reading them. We have like a, a chat room where we post all of them and uh, we read all of them in that way. And uh, if we haven't read yours yet, it doesn't mean we're not going to, even if you sent it a long time ago, we just have a certain unofficial order that we do them in that doesn't really make that much sense but i don't know it makes sense in our heads maybe um okay uh andy tammy thank you we'll see you next week bye bye